Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I'm thrilled to welcome our latest guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Richard Landers, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Minnesota. Before we start today's conversation, I wanna remind you all that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners, thank you. And we will have everyone who's joining the live conversation on mute for the entirety of the conversation, but you are welcome to weigh in via the chat at any time. Also, a quick reminder that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation Series are recorded and published as a podcast on Apple and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP Conversation Series landing page. As our live listeners will notice, today's conversation does include video as part of this platform. You'll have the opportunity to ask questions during the live broadcast using the chat function on Zoom. Richard has graciously agreed to remain on the line for 15 minutes following our standard 30-minute recorded broadcast to answer some of the in-the-moment questions our live listeners might have today. So now I'm happy to welcome Dr. Richard Landers to our conversation. He is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota and holds the John P. Campbell Distinguished Professorship of Industrial Organizational Psychology. He is principal investigator for TNT Lab, testing new technologies and learning assessment and behavior, where his research concerns the use of innovative technologies such as digital games and machine learning in the domains of psychometric assessment, employee selection, adult learning, and research methods. His academic work focuses upon interdisciplinary contributions merging psychology and computer science, publishing in both psychology journals such as JAP, JBP, IOP, and psychological methods, as well as human-computer interaction outlets, including computers, in Human Behavior, International Journal of Human-Computer Studies, and Simulation and Gaming. He is also a fellow of the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. Dr. Landers currently serves as ed associate editor for both the International Journal of Selection and Assessment and Simulation and Gaming, and is on the editorial boards of five journals, including the Journal of Applied Psychology and Journal of Business Psychology. He is also currently serve serving as chair of three SIOP committees and subcommittees, and is on Aon Hewitt's and Revelian's scientific advisory boards. He regularly consults with both startups and larger organizations, he is author of a statistics textbook and has developed two edited volumes, Social Media and Employee Selection and the Cambridge Handbook of Technology and Employee Behavior. Finally, he maintains a trade blog at http colon backslash backslash neoacademic.com. Richard, we are so glad that you could join us today. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. Thank you. <laughs> it was. I feel like I'm, I'm out of breath as I, I often am going through these lengthy lists of accomplishments um, of our guests. So thank you for, for being here. And we're excited to dive in and learn more about your uh, the work that you do and your trilingual nature and being fluent in IOPsych tech and the world of business. So we're going to learn more about that today. So Richard, to start our talk, one of our listeners would love to know what motivated you to work in the field of biopsychology. How'd you get your start? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think everybody has kind of an idiosyncratic path into IO, at least everybody I've ever talked to about it. Um, mine, mine actually, I started being interested in computer science from a very early age. Um, back when I was, God, it must've been six or seven, I made my first like computer program in a language called uh, BASIC which I mean, nothing. It made, made my name flash, which I thought was super cool at the time. So everybody thought for uh, many, many years that I would be a comp sci uh, person, that, that that was my path. 
Um, and then in college, I went to my first comp sci class uh, and did well in it. Um, but I discovered and this. This will set this sound. This is a weird path, even 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 weird for me to say it out loud. So uh, in that class, uh, so I had and continue to have a pretty severe like social anxiety kind of issue. And so I realized that, that all computer science was essentially teamwork, was group work. And I was like, that's not for me. <laughs> so then I started looking for uh, other options. Um, and I started to think, well, why is it that I'm so uh, so nervous and, and have such, such fear about teams and groups and whatnot? And that actually led me into psychology. Uh, and then I thought I was going to be a clinician for a while. I worked at a uh, Middle Tennessee Mental Health Institute one summer, which was supporting people who were not uh, mentally fit to stand trial for violent crime. Decided definitely did not want to go into clinical psychology at that point. Um, and then just by pure happenstance, took a testing class with uh, John Lounsbury, who was teaching at Tennessee at the time, uh, University of Tennessee, uh, and just was really loved it, really loved testing. Uh, and that's really what brought me into IO. Um, I, I really wanted to go into grad school. I had a vision of myself as a professor from a pretty early age, just like the idea of it. Uh, and I talked to him and I said, I really want to do psychology, but I want to do something practical and useful. And he said, there's two options, IO or human factors. Uh, and if you're more introverted, you should go into human factors. And I said, that sounds like a challenge. I'm going into IO. And that's, that's pretty much how I got here. Uh, kind of kind of roundabout, I guess. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a lot of bouncing around. And I agree. I feel like for all of the stories we hear on the conversation series, and then certainly I think all of us in IO who talk to people, there is no straight path in IO. I think we all kind of found it through winding ways. So thanks mm -hmm. for sharing that. A major challenge facing the field now, but I think historically has always been the case is really applying research into practice or the science practitioner gap, however we want to frame it up. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on the alignment between research and practice and your domains of expertise? Yeah, so, so I mostly focus on technology in selection training and in research methods. So I guess I would say that uh, selection is the best aligned. Um, in that right now, that's, I don't know how much that's really saying, but it's best line in that I think selection researchers are highly attuned to the problems that are being faced in practice uh, and are interested in trying to understand those problems and conduct research in those areas. Um, and that practitioners, I mean, I get a lot of requests of like, you know, we've heard of this new technology. Is there any research out yet? Can we, can, that we can adopt, that we can better understand what's going on in this space? Uh, there is still a lag, which is true in all areas. Um, technology, actually, a paper just came out, um, Tara Barron and colleagues, I think it's in um, uh, IO Perspectives, on there's like a seven-year lag between when new technology comes out and when it starts really appearing in our research literature. I think it was seven. Um, so there's a lag, but everybody's at least turned in the same direction, which is good. <laughs> uh, as you move outside of selection, I think it starts to break down a little. Uh, training Training has always been kind of a weird area in, in I.O. It's in practice, it's really been taken over very heavily by the educational people, uh, which is, is OK. But um, it does mean, I think, that there's a little bit more of a disconnect on in that side. Um, and in research methods, I think it's a it's a fun question because, uh, you know, the practitioners of research methods are I.O.'s doing research. So that's kind of all of us. We are all practitioners of research methods um, uh, and there's definitely a big gap between what we know in research and what actually ends up appearing in our journals, especially in regard to things like 
open science and appropriate methodology. Um, that's a that's a big area uh, in in terms of like a practice practice research gap uh, even among researchers, which is kind of a funny thing. Um, yeah, uh, in 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 general, there's definitely a delay. I I, I think that the um, the best alignment tends to occur uh, when you have people in research actively engaging in industry in, in outreach, um, which it really varies by researcher as to how much people actually try to do that. Uh, and I, I definitely know some researchers who just don't care, and that's very depressing to me. Um, but for the people that do reach out, um, at least in the selection space, I think in the assessment space, um, things are things are okay. Could be better. <laughs> What you just mentioned um, reinforces what we heard from Stephen Rogelberg on a recent mm. conversation as well and talking about that lag between how the world is moving faster and faster. And I don't know what the lag is from when a new technology is introduced to when people start using it in the real world, but let's call it seven seconds versus seven years <laughs> to get into the research journals. But you know, he talked a lot about how our field really needs to speed up, how quickly mm. we can start talking about these things and researching them, even if we don't know everything, how can we start getting it out into the sphere of conversation to share what we do know, what we don't know, and what we're learning? Yeah, it, it's it's a big problem. Um, you know, I, there's a very popular concept by the research firm Gartner, um, the, the hype cycle, which really, if you haven't heard of it before, I recommend you look into it. But the, the basic message is that technologies become extremely popular very quickly. Everybody starts using them. Then people start to question why they're using them. And then the popularity drops back down. Uh, you end up sort of with a low point of saying, why did we even do this in the first place? Uh, and then some people kind of persist and continue to use it long-term and some people don't after we, we started map out what's actually going on. And the problem is that all of those steps basically occur before any published research in IO has come out about the technology. Uh, so, you know, it's a problem that, um, Actually, like uh, think of something like um, sometimes it's good. Think of something like blockchain. Everybody thought everything would be blockchain like about five, six years ago. There was a massive amount of popularity of wow, every like everything we've ever done everywhere, every HR record, every like literally everything's going to be on the blockchain. Uh, and there wasn't any IO research about it, which turned out to be okay because most of the interest in the blockchain kind of fizzled away, at least in the HR space. And it's obviously crypto and all that other stuff. But in, in our particular work domain, it's like, well, maybe it has some applications, maybe not. Eh. Uh, and we, don't, we didn't end up seeing uh, basically any research on it. Uh, on the other hand, you had problems like uh, take internet-based testing. At the point when we had really good research findings on whether internet-based testing was a good idea or not, we had already been using it in practice for like a decade <laughs> at that point. Uh, so it, it, it's good and bad. It, it, it prevents the research from wasting time and things that end up being fads. But at the same time, it also keeps a big delay in terms of things that are meaningful. And it's really hard to predict which things are which sometimes like in the moment. It's easy in hindsight to say, obviously, the internet's an important thing. But there were people at that time saying the internet is a fad. No one's going to be using this after five years. No one, no one really knew. Uh, and it's, it's hard to predict. Well, on that topic, so you've written about the need for IO psychologists to reach practitioners through better methods such as open access to relevant mm. research articles. You've also discussed the need to communicate research in a language that is familiar to practitioners, right? Speaking the language of, of the users and of the business. One of our listeners, Wandre P, asks, what do you think are primary reasons those things have been slower to take hold in, you know, PSYOP or in the IO community? Yeah, um, it's complicated. So... 
open open science and open access, uh, I think, is difficult just because there is there is a significant chunk of people who don't think anything that the challenges that open solves the the problems that open addresses are not really problems for IO psychology. Uh, you can easily point to, to to like social psych and say, oh, when somebody does nine 30 person studies in a row and then publishes four of them and comes out with some flashy theory about it, that's obviously a problem. And open science, science methods help address that. And they ask, well, what is the equivalent though in IO? And, and I can see the argument uh, that uh, in addition to in addition to maybe it's not as bad of a problem in IO, maybe. Uh, in addition to that, the, the risk is that doing more of these kind of open science-y kind of approaches, um, thing, especially things like data reporting, could potentially discourage practitioner research. When you say things like, well, to maximize the value scientifically of this research, it needs to be open access, the data need to be out there, share all your analytic files. There are going to be a lot of practitioners that immediately turn around and say, uh, you can do research on our data, but we don't want it out there. Even, even the anonymized version we gave you we don't want that like publicly available. Uh, and that by having those kind of standards mandated, then you even exacerbate the research uh, practice gap even further. Like you, you essentially say, well, unless you meet these like stringent sharing standards and openness standards that um, your research isn't publishable, which is, it is problematic. I, I would say in, in all things, the right answer is a balance that we should be, we should be encouraging open sharing and open access and open everything to the extent that it doesn't directly create new problems. And I think right now we are definitely on the side of that problem of saying we're not open enough. So there's, there's still a ways to go before we get to that balance point. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the arguments that uh, against some of it. <laughs> um, the, I, I mean, open, um, open access publication is a different problem. Uh, and the reason, I don't think that's been, that's unique to IO, that's everywhere. Um, we have such a legacy of for-profit publishing uh, in science at this point um, in the last, you know, 60, 70 years really, uh, that uh, it is hard to create credibility for journal articles in open, in new open access journals. Uh, there's not as much cachet associated with it. The publishers are motivated to keep making their, you know, large profit margins. Um, they have all the uh, tools in place. Like even if you think realistically right now, if you wanted to start up a brand new, a brand new journal, like for a, a, like, let's say a practice oriented journal on technology based trading, like that's a thing I've thought about a few times. Um, you, you ask the question, well, who's going to read it? Who's going to submit to it? Who's going to view it credibly? Like, say, for example, I use like the University of Minnesota infrastructure to create a journal. Who is going to view that credibly versus like APA sponsored JAP or Wiley sponsored personnel psych? Like all, all of that adds a credibility and cachet that's just it's it's a lot of momentum that is hard to shove your way into. So, yeah, I, I think we're moving in 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 the right direction. Uh, but we definitely need to do more to, to cross into that, uh, to, to, really, to really connect researchers and practitioners and provide useful information, useful data, useful methods and models uh, across both sides, both sides of the aisle, I almost said, to, to everybody involved. <laughs> you, touch on, you touch on some really, really interesting topics there and then thinking about some of the broader trends and lessons we might be able to learn as a field from 
Mm. highly competitive fields like science and technology and some of the similar barriers that they would have had to address to get into this open access or open source model and being able to do that, what that's been able to mean in terms of the exponential progress in those fields that takes place now that there's more openness and sharing across you know, information that people have. And then you think about, to your point on the open source publishing or open access publishing, what's happening in journalism, just broadly speaking. And like you said, where people are accessing their information what you know how people you know verify the credibility of sources or, or what they do to verify those credibility of sources i think there are probably a lot of implications to unpack um for our field in thinking about those trends and where we fit in with that so thank you on the topic of trends we had another question here as an associate editor for the international journal of selection and assessment you must come across a wide variety of new and thought-provoking research or practices on selection um you mentioned some of the, you know, difficulty in kind of prospectively anticipating what's going to be a fad versus what's what's going to stick. Given your expertise in this area, what are some of the research trends that you think are most promising and will be most valuable for practitioners and where might researchers be able to focus their attention in this space? Yeah. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I, I would say that um, among all of the current sort of tech trends, the, the broad idea of machine learning is not going anywhere. That machine learning, this is, this is really how you can tell that is a legitimate advancement. Machine learning is actually not new. It's an evolution of existing statistical modeling approaches that we already use. It's an improvement. So usually when we see technology that people aren't going to potentially end up using very much. It's it's just like a brand new concept that comes out of nowhere. So like blockchain, there was nothing, blockchain was just a new concept. So that's why it's gonna be, it's a very long road to figuring out exactly what to do with it. Machine learning in contrast is just an evolution of linear modeling and statistical modeling that we already have and already do. Um, the main difference is that we can now model input data that is much more complex than we realistically could before. So whereas before we had to have you know, strict K to N ratios, and we had to be really careful about how many cases we found and keep our number of variables small. Now we can use a picture as an input. We can use a video as a set of predictors. Uh, and that's that's definitely more powerful than, than what we were doing before. And it has a lot of potential applications. So how that will actually get used is what we don't quite know at this point. Uh, natural language processing, I think, is probably the next big frontier. Uh, video processing requires just a huge amount more data to realistically be useful, uh, whereas natural language, just, just taking what people say uh, and using that as inputs into models, really fast advancements in the research right now. Uh, we're already seeing some pretty cool applications of it in, in the field. Um, I, I would say that that is probably the thing to look at next and, and more broadly, what else will machine learning enable uh, that uh, things we might have wanted to do but couldn't do in the past? Um, and I, yeah, I would say that anyone not on that bandwagon at this point is at a significant risk of being left behind. Like e even if you're using, even if you're doing statistical modeling in, in practice right now and you say, ah, I'm not really sure what machine learning really gives to me, that, that it, that's a perfectly valid conclusion. Machine learning may not actually give you anything more beyond what you already do, but you need to know. Like you have to be able to understand the tools well enough to say, all right, I could add in some extra predictors in this context. Oh, I could model this other new kind of data. Is there really a reason that would help me? 
maybe not, but you need to have the essentially be educated enough to know, oh, to make that decision to say this would or would not actually be uh, to be useful. So that's, yeah, I, I think that's the, the, the most promising horizon at the moment. That's great. So you talked about the promising side of it. Let's flip to the perilous side of it. So with this proliferation of innovation and technology across things, uh, like you just mentioned, digital games, machine learning, um, especially when we think about applications of those to high stakes decision-making, for example, selection, what, what are some of the concerns that you have that you think others should be aware of and what guidance would you give to people and organizations who are considering using these tools and are probably getting calls from vendors on a daily basis saying, hey, this is the best thing since sliced bread and you need to use this now and it sounds great. There, you know, there's, I think there's a bit of a mindset shift needed. Um, It's something I wrote about um, with a student of mine, Sebastian Moran, uh, in um, a paper we put out in Annual Review of Organizational Psychology and Organizational Behavior, a RAPUB, I think is the acronym. Um, We basically talked about how psychologists and people coming from a psychological background tend to apply assumptions to how technology works and what technology is that are kind of harmful. The the major issue is that I think as psychologists and people people trained in a psychological tradition, we are inclined to conceptualize technology as if it is a, a construct, as if, say, say, for example, the question is machine learning useful. Uh, I think the immediate thought is to think of machine learning as this sort of singular concept that either it is useful or it isn't, and we need research to find out, and we need practice to implement. But in reality, machine learning refers to thousands of different specific kinds and approaches uh, to to statistical modeling. Uh, Games is actually a great example, too. People ask me questions, because we do a lot of games-based research, ask questions like, oh, are games good assessments? And that just asking that question shows a lot of assumptions that don't really hold up. That's a lot like saying, the, the example I like is it's a lot like saying, oh, do you think questionnaires are good assessments? The answer is obviously it depends. There is so much that goes into the design processes and the development processes to create a good assessment. The same is true with every technology. So it's not just a matter of is a is is a game a good assessment, but was how was this particular game that we're looking at designed, developed, how was it tested? Uh, what models does it use? How does it process its data? Like all of those deeper questions have to be asked. So it's not, it's not purely a question of uh, you know, technology as a concept, but rather a specific instantiation of it. Uh, and I see in my, especially in my consulting, that this is, is really a major difficulty that that uh, people psychologically trained had to get over when talking about whether new technologies are useful, because you can't just go in and say, all right, I'm just going to go look at the research literature. I'm going to talk to other people that have used games and see how they did. It's there are many more layers deep that you have to dig uh, in order to understand what what that technology actually potentially brings. It's it's never a question. It's not like uh, personality, right? So if we think about the relationship between personality and job performance, uh, conscientiousness, for example, is a single characteristic a person has. It, it expresses itself in lots of different ways, but it's still a trait we have. That's our basic sort of trait model of personality. And if you go into a different organization, your personality is the same, right? It may be expressed a little differently. It may interact with the situation differently, but it's still your, that trait is your trait. And technology 
It's not how it works. When I use this uh, game-based assessment, uh, when I develop a game-based assessment in this company, and I go to this other game-based assessment, this other, they may not even resemble each other, even at all. Like uh, one of my favorite examples of a game, which was actually produced by a, uh, a researcher in game, in game studies named Ian Bogost, who's a, a, a critic of using games for non-entertainment purposes, essentially, um, and uh, not seriously considering them uh, on their own merits. Uh, he created a game to illustrate how stupid games were, and his game was called Cow Clicker. And you could go onto a website, and every time you click the cow, you got a point, and you could click the cow once every eight hours. Full game. That's the game. That game, fundamentally different than a modern, like, AAA title, right? And even though that's an extreme example, that kind of not fully considering what that word really means and what it can refer to, that happens across all areas of technology. So if you say, I'm going to adopt a game-based assessment, do you think game-based assessments are good? I mean, it depends. It depends on how it was developed, what it is, what it represents. I'm going to use machine learning. Is that a good idea? Depends exactly what you're doing. Depends how you got your data, how you're processing it, how you're using the models, what the expertise of the people involved are. I, I have a, just a massive set of development questions that follow every single inquiry about tech. Um, so for practitioners, I, I think the important piece is learning how to ask those questions being willing to admit when you don't know something, uh, not just saying, oh, we use machine learning and it's bias correcting and blah, 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 to be willing to confront and say, okay, what do you mean by that? How did you get to that conclusion? How did you get to that claim? Uh, and similarly to discourage researchers from making those claims, because that's still happening in our research literature too. So yeah, I, I think the biggest threat in general uh, is treating technology as if it's psychology. Like we have to legitimately blend these two worlds, not just apply our way of thinking into the tech space. That's, it's just a recipe for disaster. <laughs> well, I think if anyone's gonna take anything away from this, what I'm hearing you say is it should be go check out Cow Clicker. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one more topic uh, in all seriousness now. There is one topic that we haven't covered that's a big one, which is around social media. So you've touched on it, but you're the author of a book that talks about social media and employee selection, given the popularity of social media in the present day and its use in hiring and recruiting. What are your recommendations for researchers and practitioners for how to use these platforms with an IOSYC and specifically within selection contexts. So it's so this is the same general problem as I was talking about before. So different social media platforms exist for different reasons. They attract different populations. They offer different features. Those features are not stable over time. Uh, the populations that they advertise to are not stable to are not stable over time, and that massive mix of stimuli and design considerations creates what we see as the output on social media. So if an organization is considering using social media in their selection processes, or in, if a researcher is, is interested in going into this kind of space, um, that's question number one. Uh, who, what actual technological platform are you considering and, and why? Uh, at this point, for example, I don't know that there's much value in Facebook for almost any organizational purpose. Uh, related to selection, at least. Uh, whereas LinkedIn, we have a little bit of evidence that there are organizationally relevant signals that are occurring in that platform because it is advertised to a business audience, to people interested in work and finding jobs and so on. And it changes the, the kind of information that you could potentially get out of those two different sources. 
Um, they attract different people and they uh, encourage people to interact in different ways. There's also an ethical dimension to it that when you uh, are on LinkedIn, there's an expectation that maybe businesses and businessy people will be looking at your profile that doesn't exist in other social media platforms. So we have to navigate that, that ethical dimension uh, as well. Uh, I can say very definitively, because the research is quite clear on this, that simply giving a um, telling managers, hey, go look at Facebook profiles and use that as part of your decision making is a very bad idea. That the information that they get from just glancing at a social media profile, not very good, uh, tends to be uh, unreliable, not uh, lacks validity. Um, instead, if someone wants to approach social media, it needs to be approached just as rigorously as any other uh method that you would for selection to say, how do we achieve adequate reliability? Probably need to have multiple evaluators of a social media profile, giving ratings, looking at the averages across raters, calculating inter reliability, conducting validity studies, examining what actually uh, co-varies with meaningful organizational outcomes. And if you do that and you find something useful, then maybe you can use it. Um, there's some promise in the machine learning space about that. So there are ways to use machine learning to extract uh, social media signals. Um, I, I would target LinkedIn first, but you could probably use more than that um, and use that to develop a valid uh, selection tool. Whether it'd be ethical to do that, I don't know. Uh, whether you would have uh, issues with bias associated with the way that you were grabbing it, that's definitely a concern. Are there ways that you could exacerbate bias by using machine learning in an irresponsible way? Absolutely. So it's just exploring all of those contextual questions. It would be the only path forward, I think, for, for using it. Um, definitely don't, don't just jump in. That's, yeah, that's very risky. <laughs> well, on that note, I know there are so many more topics that we could cover, so many more questions we got than we could go through our time today in the recorded portion of our broadcasts. Live listeners, stick around and we get um, about 15 more minutes of uh, Richard's time to dive in further to your real-time questions, but to our podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in. And Richard, of course, on behalf of PSYOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you for such an engaging and enlightening conversation and taking the time to speak with us. We might have to have you back at least every seven years to talk about the new <laughs> technologies that are going on. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks so much. This is fun. And please join us for our next conversation on Wednesday, September 29th with Andre Martin, who is the VP of People Development at Google to learn more about the applied side of leadership and people development from the practitioner perspective. Thank you for joining today's discussion. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Until next time, take care.